0: everyone. Before we start the episode, Matt and I wanted to note that since this episode was recorded, somebody mentioned in our conversation has been publicly exposed or condemned for wrongdoing, whether Me Too related or
1: otherwise. Because making these seasons of And the Winner Still Is involves so much research and coordination, we typically begin recording episodes well before we plan to post them. And while that usually just means we don't know who won Best Picture in the latest Oscar race, in this case, it means we will be discussing a public figure without the context of that exposure. So, uh, please keep that
0: in mind while you listen, and we hope you still enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the PopBreak.com's official Oscars podcast, hosted by Marissa Carpico and Matt Taylor. everyone this is marissa carpico the film editor at the i am here with our tv editor matt taylor say hello matt hi everyone um and one of our writers tom moore um who is i can always rely on to uh write about whatever piece of shit is coming out um i can't believe he hasn't quit um
2: say hello tom <laughs> it's my specialty what can i say hello everyone <laughs>
0: um and we are here for our um, the winner still is podcast about past Oscar um, ceremonies and and winners. Um, this year we're doing 1980. This is the first year we've done that's like in a, within a season that's uh, directly after another year we've done 1979. Um, and boy, is the industry completely different. It feels like after a single year. Um, the ceremony was held on March 31st, 1981, at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles. It was supposed to be held the day before, um, but that was the day that Reagan got shot, um, uh, and they were, weren't were sure he was going to survive. Um, so they sort of postponed it a day, and then he ended up being okay, and they aired a uh, a taped message from him about the – about just like the movie business because he was an actor um, mm-hmm. that aired before. Um the ceremony was hosted by Johnny Carson. Um, it had some wild fucking presenting pairs. I don't know if you read this as well, Matt, but they had pairs like Angie Dickinson and Luciano Pavarotti, and Richard Pryor <laughs> and and Jane Seymour for pre- presenting. Which I was like, what did they just like randomly throw darts at a wall? It was weird um,
1: i want them to do that again though like i want weird pairings like they they always do, like the most boring pairings these days and like the banter is so bad but yeah just like imagine the gold if you put like i don't know <laughs> like a young star like, like scarlett johansson with i don't know rita moreno that's the first two names <laughs> that came to mind. <behind>. <laughs> I, I want
0: that that's now. exactly what i would like um <laughs> the ceremony was the lowest tv ratings in its 29 year history of being broadcast um I mean I'm sure we've hit the you know today's would look like embarrassing compared to it. Um and the winner that year is Ordinary People based on Judith Guest's um novel uh, about a family. Oh well, you know what? I'm going to let Tom talk about it since this is he's our guest and this, this is his first time on the um On the podcast. So, Tom, why don't you give us a little um, rundown of the plot and then what your thoughts on the movie were and your experience with it uh, before the pod or because of the pod.
2: Yeah. Um, So this is the directorial debut of Robert Redford. Went from acting. Now he's doing a directing stint. And uh, it's basically about this family that um, goes through a tragic loss. They lose their oldest son and uh, their other son, played by Timothy Hutton. Uh, commit suicide and it's basically them recovering with their own feelings and attempting to essentially keep the family together after like this like terrible tragedy um it's actually interesting this movie because i did the the robert redford piece uh when it was uh the old man and the gun last year oh great and um it was interesting watching it again i think i actually liked it more this time than the the first time i saw it It's just such a, um, like, a personal film. And, like, it really, uh, I really, like, connected with, like, Timothy Hutton's character so much. And uh, I thought it was just so, um, (sighs) God, it's funny thinking about it, too, because there's so many, uh, I feel like there's a lot of, like, movies about grief now. Like, we had Hereditary last year. And, like, uh, it's it's just, like, it's, like, this movie's so timeless to me. And it's, uh, it really holds up well. And uh, it's like easily one of my top out of this five. Um, I think it's such a strong debut for uh, Redford as a director. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of notorious as um, in like that the sort of film and Oscar circles is like being an undeserving winner. But I have a suspicion that the three of us are not going to play into that sort of narrative. And I, I really agree. I think it's a a really strong, um, you know, personal drama. And it realistically Mm -hmm. sort of rings in a a history of, you know, personal family dramas winning uh, Mm -hmm. in a way that often didn't make people pissed off. Um, (sighs) But before I jump into my stuff, uh, how about you, Matt? What's your experience with Ordinary People? Um, You and I have referred to it before on the podcast. So, I mean, this isn't your first time watching it.
1: (laughs) No, um, this movie was kind of like a big deal in my house. Um, Both my parents really liked it. And then I didn't see it until I went to college. Like I just watched it one night when I was um, in my dorm. But when my brother went to college, he watched it in a course. He took a course, um, mental health on on screen. And they watched like a different movie every week and discussed if it was like an accurate depiction of whatever mental illness um, was depicted and everything. And he watched this and he, I remember him texting me like – have you heard of Ordinary People? And I'm like, yes, I have. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and he, like, he really loved it, and it's like one of his favorite movies. So ever since he watched it, it's kind of like been revived in my house as like a movie we watch sometimes, which I think is insane because it's the most depressing movie <laughs> of all time. But
0: it's not a um, feel good family film.
1: No, no. no, we watch it quite a bit. But um, this getting ready for this podcast was my first time watching it in its entirety since I first watched it because I am not like my family. I do not want to subject myself to it on like a regular basis. <laughs> and it's wonderful. Yeah. It is, it's funny to me that it has this reputation as being one of the lesser best picture winners, which I mean, we all know why because it's not the boy movie basically, but, um, mm-hmm. but it's excellent. It's so well acted. It's, you know, really raw in a way that I think, Like, I I love a good family drama, but, like, so few family dramas are this raw and this, like, based in a real emotion. I think it's not afraid to get a little dark and have characters be less than perfect, but without ever, like, condemning them. Like, I think Mary Tyler Moore's character is a really good example of someone who is not exactly a likable person, but the movie's not, like, making it a sexist thing. It's more of just, like it's like a very honest portrayal of this person who went through this horrible thing and is reacting to it in the way she, she does. And it's just funny to me, like watching this, um, that we don't have anything quite like it anymore. Like family dramas have moved to TV. Like we've talked about that quite a bit, Marissa, over the course of the season, weirdly enough. But, um, it is funny that Tommy mentioned hereditary because that's like the closest comparison we have Mm -hmm. to ordinary people today. And it's like half ordinary people, half the exorcist. And it's like, (laughs) <laughs> it's a wild, it's wild to watch and just think of a Hollywood has changed, but I really, I really do love this movie. I think it's really special.
0: Yeah, no, it's, I, I agree with um, all of that. I mean, it's, I, I think it's so, the fact that it still resonates so many years later, I mean, it's almost 40 years old at this point, like and it still totally works and is interesting is like, I think a testament to how excellent it is. And I've never read the novel and I probably should at some point, although it seems, I mean, I, I'm sure it's deeply depressing, but, um, <laughs> I saw it years ago, I think it's probably around the time I saw terms of endearment. Um, just because like they're both in that same sort of category of, you know, family dramas that, that one best picture that don't deserve it. But I mean, in my mind I actually do, Um, and I was really impressed with it. And uh, since then I've had experiences more with, I mean, I, by that, by the time I'd seen it, a friend of mine had passed away early and, you know, I'd, I'd seen the way her parents reacted. And then since then I've had another friend pass away and, you know, seen that bit around that reaction. Um, and like I, there is in the criticism of the time, you can see a lot of rampant sexism towards Mary Tyler's Mary Tyler Moore's character. There's a a quote in Inside Oscar from a review that says like, you know, the the, the suns the sunshine girl becomes the woman you, you'd love to hate and it's like I don't where is that? Like yeah. yeah. What are
1: you like what entertainment is there derived from hating her? Like it's like right. not like right. well, what a weird also, misreading. There's yeah. just
0: no basis for it in the film, realistically, in in my mind. I mean, you know, if you back back then I can see the internalized misogyny of of it all, but like people react to grief differently and realistically realistically the thing that is so interesting to me about that role is that she's playing the kind of role that a man would usually play and like if 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 you literally just switch the genders no one would say like he's a hateable monster it would just be like he's so complicated grief is hard for men you know what i mean
2: yeah so
0: like i don't know i really admire the film and her performance you know she's best known for being on the on tv is like truly the happiest person ever and like this is so against that and it's such a good performance um and it really seems i don't know really true and and like deeply felt here and and it's a I mean it takes on a sort of really depressing angle uh, her her own son like committed suicide the month after the film was released cuz i and she talks about like using their difficult relationship as as you know uh, mm-hmm. as part of like fueling the performance which is just like so awful but it's i don't know it's such an interesting performance and sort of becomes more interesting the more you Put it into context of history and her life and and everything, um, but I also just think the film works really beautifully um, as as a character drama. Um, I think. We we'll be talking about the movie a lot, but I think a, a thing I always that always strikes me too is Timothy Hutton's character, um, and you mentioned him a little bit, Tom. Do you want to expand on like what your thoughts are on his performance specifically? And um, I think the thing that's that that could be really corny, but really works in the film is the um, the stuff with his therapist.
2: Yes, uh, yeah, that's some, of my, that's some of, like my favorite stuff because I really like uh, Judd Hirsch's performance in this, and I feel like a lot of the scenes with um i feel like a lot of or it's like at least a quarter or a third of the movie is with uh timothy hutton and judd together in the room just like just trying to like get feelings out and i feel like that's what is so like pivotal about timothy hutton's character um because like it, it's essentially the movie is kind of exploring how to express feelings after such a terrible things happen i think this with all the characters and mm-hmm. um it's actually interesting you mentioned about like the gender roles being flipped i was thinking the same thing with uh mary and uh donald sutherland's characters like they really are like it's exactly like the the father is supposed to be the one typically who's seen as like the uh the strong willed figure who's not going to show emotion and then like the mother is supposed to be uh the like one who tries to keep everything together just tries to play like peacemaker but like that that's not what happens here it's the complete opposite and it leads to like these like complex feelings about feelings essentially and i really um it's what made me connect so much about uh timothy hutton's character because like he he just doesn't know how to express his feelings and he's sort of afraid to because if he does then he is like he he'll essentially feel worse about himself you know and it's like it's just like complete like it's just so complex. And I think that's what's so good about it.
0: Yeah. It's a really difficult role for a young actor. And, like, every time I watch the movie, I think, like, damn, I wish he'd had a bigger career. Like, <laughs> I know. I was Hunt. thinking the same thing.
2: Because, like, I only know him from, uh, like, now he's mostly just for TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's that kind of actor that, like, this movie shows, like, he can make a big presence for himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was funny, Um after I watched the film, I just went
1: on his letterbox, like I was on letterbox and I went on his page and they ranked the movies. When you go on the, <laughs> the actor's page by, um, what movies like is most logged from their filmography and beautiful boy was like number one or number two. And I genuinely guns in my head, cannot remember him in that movie. Like I, if I cannot tell you who he played in that movie <laughs> and that came out last year. And it's just like, it is crazy that he gives this incredible performance and he was so young in it. And it, just like nothing after that like in, until the the last first thing I remember really him like seeing him in is the uh, American Crime the ABC miniseries that was only on mm-hmm. for um, a few seasons which he was great in um, and then Haunting on the Hill House where he's also great but and it's probably like the best thing that happened to his career since Ordinary People because of how popular it was and I think he's coming back for the second season but mm-hmm. it's, um, it's just sad that what like what a not a waste of a career i don't want to like make sort of judgment but like (laughs) it's like this is surprising it's surprising and it reminds me of like timothy chalamet if Mm. like timothy chalamet didn't do anything after calling by your name like it's like it just it's wild that he that like that was that was it years wow
0: what what a comparison that's fascinating like (laughs) I, that it's completely that would be, I mean, what a horror a nightmare scenario that would be.
1: <laughs> I mean, there's, there are little differences, like, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, I don't think Timothy Hudden had like the sex symbol status that Timothy Chalamet does, which I think plays a big part, but yeah, um, I mean, you maybe did i probably
0: date like every woman in in, in in Hollywood, though. He was like with Ty and Lane at this point, and then I and then he was uh, he it um, my beloved um, oh, I've completely forgotten her name. D-d-d-d- uh deborah it's winger no, no. Deb yeah. Winger. okay yeah i shame on me um but for like a long time but yeah i don't know he he did have a sort of like soft baby sex i mean more like a lucas hedges maybe in his sex mm. and belief status
1: um yeah, the sensitive uh, way. god lucas hedges if they ever like if they ever do ordinary people on stage put lucas hedges in and i would be there i think
2: perfect for that
1: yeah. Oh, oh, he'd be so good. Oh my! Now I'm just gonna think about that the whole, <laughs> the whole rest of this recording.
2: Did you guys I mean, think uh, it was weird that uh, he was nominated for? It's a he's a best supporting actor. I always find that weird with Oscars oh, when they like. We, are,
0: we will absolutely we talk will about talk that. that when we get to the the re, yeah. Trust and believe. We'll, we will get to that. It's bizarre. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, the, the
1: name of the game this year is fucking category fraud. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I will just say. Um, I think that was a trend that the Oscars did for a very long time of nominating children. Not that he's a child, but, like, he's (laughs) playing a high schooler. And he was probably pretty young when they made this movie. He's, like, Um, 19, yeah. Yeah, so, like, for a while they would always put them in support. Like, up until, like, Haley Steinfeld in – True grit, true grit where it's like for such a long time, that was just like the things. So I wonder if that played a part in it. Like the first time I remember a kid being nominated in the correct category was Kevin Zane Wallace. So mm-hmm. like, I just think for whatever reason, they just did not take child actors seriously enough. And we're like into supporting basically, <laughs> yeah. which is, but yeah, we will talk about it because I have some notes. <laughs> yeah. We,
0: I, <laughs> there will be much like uh, accusations of category fraud uh, in this episode. Um, <laughs> I think we've got a lot to cover, so I think we might want to move on, but is there anything else you guys want to talk about um, that you th- think we might might not get to later uh, about uh, Ordinary People?
1: Um, it's really good, and I hope people watch it <laughs> because yeah. it feels like weirdly forgotten. Yeah. I mean, my brother did text me and say, have you heard of this movie? <laughs> so, like, I don't know. The children don't know.
0: Yeah, the children have <laughs> forgotten indeed. Um, let's talk about... I feel like we should talk about the the other one that is constantly sort of seen as the, um, I don't know, the, the the real, the true deserving winner in all those articles that are like, you know, worst best picture winners ever. Um, and uh, we, and, and I mean, it's, it's I don't know, uh, when this comes out, well, everybody will still probably be talking about the Irishman too. So um, let's talk about Raging Bull. Uh, Martin Scorsese. Um, it's about... Uh, the real-life fighter, uh, boxer, Jake LaMotta, um, played by Robert De Niro in the film. He basically plays him at his peak uh, when he's physically, you know, dominant and winning most of his his matches. Um, And then it jumps ahead a little bit until when he's 50 pounds overweight, um, which De Niro gained the weight for the role. Mm. Um, And uh, to see where his life is led um a lot of personal choices have sort of ruined the you know uh promising career and and promising life that he originally had when he was first a boxer it's black and white um I first saw it well I didn't even see the whole thing the first time I remember seeing an image from it I was I like walked into um you know it was high school and I walked into a room full of boys and they were like watching it which is like exactly it. A <laughs> <That> perfect <laughs> summation. Um, uh, and it was that last scene and I was like, I remember thinking at the time like, oh, whatever this movie is, it's clearly great. Like just from whatever scene I saw, possibly the last one, I might've just walked out of the room. I don't remember, but mm. I remember thinking like, I got to watch this one day cause it seems like a masterpiece. And then I didn't watch it until after college. Uh, and I remember, and it, and it was, it's, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, it's shot in black and white except for um, one scene. That's like a perfect use of color. Um, and it's, it's a brilliant picture of like a difficult anti-hero male figure. Um, and uh, Scorsese's done a lot of those, but this one is just like, it's possibly. I think it's possibly his best film. It's just so brilliant. And everybody's very good in it. Joe Pesci, who was like a, a manager of a, of a diner or something when, when he was picked out for the role by De Niro, he hadn't, he had like quit acting. Cause he's like, I'm not going to do act. I'm not going to act again until I do. I'm in something good. Um, and like Pesci spotted, um, Kathy Moriarty who plays the wife of Jake LaMotta in it. And like all of those performances are excellent. And Kathy Moriarty's like 17 in it. And it's her first role, which is fucking wild to think about. Um, mm-hmm. but it speaks to the level of everyone in the film that like it, it's it's brilliant. Like every shot is interesting, every character dynamic is interesting, and the sort of slow, you know, d- destruction of this person through his own self-absorption and just inability to just like s- chill the fuck out is <laughs> is really compelling for. So much, even though it's like a really—it's a pretty long movie. It's not like you know the Irishman mm-hmm. long, but it is a long film. Um, Matt, what's your experience with *Raging Bull*?
1: Yeah, I have a wild experience with this movie. <laughs> um, I, like all Italian American fathers, uh, my dad really loves Martin Scorsese. So when I was like. Thirteen or I can't do the math, but I don't, I don't, I I can't do the math. But whenever The Departed came out, um, I think I was thirteen. My dad just kind of like showed me all this or I see movies that I was like remotely old enough to see in his mind. So I saw Goodfellas around that time, The Departed, and Raging Bull, and I liked them all because I was getting really into movies at the time. But Raging Bull was definitely the one where I kind of was like, I recognize it's a good movie, but like I was thirteen, so I didn't quite get it the way i got goodfellas and departed and um i hadn't seen it since then so then as like um i'm sure you remember marissa and anyone who listened to our last season when taxi driver came around it was funny because i chose not to watch taxi driver again because i had seen it relatively recently and it's just so disturbing where i was like i don't want to put myself through it again but (laughs) i put this one on and um it like is more disturbing than Taxi Driver, I think. It was, my fir- again, my first time watching it since I was a kid. And suddenly it was, like, like just, like, a whole new experience because I just recognized so much of this particular breed of masculinity, like, coming from an Italian-American family. And not to get into it, but, like, thankfully, we don't really speak to anyone on my Italian-American side for various reasons because they're kind of, like, the characters in this movie. Um, <laughs> and like. It's just like – I recognize so much of this particular type of masculinity that like I didn't have the words for when I was like a little kid and like even 13, but was so terrified by. And then watching it like this and just seeing it so thoroughly explored, it's fascinating, but really, really has stuck with me since I've watched it in a way that is like so disturbing and upsetting. I, I think, I agree. I think this might be his best movie. It might not be like the one that I would, like, I don't know if I'll ever watch this movie again, to be honest. And, like, because I do find it like it really does trigger a lot of my like anxieties insecurities and everything but i think it's such brilliant filmmaking it is um so well acted and you know i he he successfully has explored this theme of masculinity in many in many of his movies including the irishman um but like this one i just think it's so damning and it's so funny to me Like, like you said it's like it has this reputation as being like a boy movie and i just like fully channel the ladybird priest of just like, they didn't understand it because like, I know so many men who love this movie and it's like, I'm like, I don't know. Don't you just like want to like sit and explore and unpack your gender basically after watching this movie? Or is that just me? I don't know. It's, it's really, really stunning. I think I, I I love it so much.
0: Yeah. I think that is a common thing. Uh, The thing that baffles me about it is that like, it is such a like indictment of, of that brand of masculinity but yet so many people re- just like see it as aspirational but i i think that kind of a lot about um a lot of scorsese's films where it's just like no you're not supposed to root for that person like, what's wrong with you yeah it's uh, like
1: i felt like that that conversation always comes up it had really happened with the um, wolf of wall street and sure. it's so funny to me because it's like scorsese is very clearly not endorsing anything in his movies usually and like mm-hmm. it's it's wild to me that so many people just like hey, it's, i'm gonna sound so condescending but i don't care like it's like <laughs> these people living like unexamined lives just like buying it at face value and i'm like my god like what what is it like to not constantly reflect on your existence i don't know i'm having i'm having a moment <laughs> go on <laughs> all right
0: uh t- well, while matt's figuring out his whole life tom do you want to talk about what your experience is with raging bull
2: so I'm going to shock the world right now. This is the first time I've ever seen it. Okay. Um, and. you uh, a young man,
0: it's fine. You know, it's, we're, I'm an old, I'm an old codger at this point on
2: the side. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I'm not, uh, Scorsese's been a weird director for me. I've, uh, I like a lot of his movies. I'm more, I usually like his movies that aren't like the Italian mafia type movies. I actually really like Shutter Island a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I I personally think that's like definitely one of his best. I I think this is up there too, because um, I I do love sports dramas. And I really think this one is so good because it reflects on the character of Jake Lamada really well, and like Robert De Niro really brings this like physicality to him that like he is a presence like throughout the entire film whenever he's on screen like, and I think it's just because like there's such this like domineering image that he has even around even the people around him like even with um his wife and like this whole like his like jealousy can like be like really felt in the movie and it really like stems back to um like the sexual frustrations that he has in his life and it's such an interesting character study it's just uh it, for me like what I loved about this was the uh, the boxing scenes I really uh, connected with the, like the you could like feel the the animosity and like that like masculine rage within them especially when he's fighting uh sugar Ray mm. and the boxing uh,
1: scenes are so like, unbelievably brutal in a way that I don't oh, think yeah. any other boxing movie has ever captured.
2: Oh, the blood splurts are, like, crazy. Like, mm-hmm. I, somebody, I forget which fight it was, but, like, he punches someone and, like, just, like, a fountain of blood just comes out of this guy's eyebrow, and it's, like, cr- it's, cra- It's like, even weirder in black and white, too, because, mm-hmm. like, it's almost more vicious, because, like, you're not seeing blood, but, like, you know that's what's happening, and it really, uh, I really do love the black and white aesthetic. I wish yeah. more movies would do it. I was happy yeah. to I was happy that this year we had two of them do it. So
0: Yeah. No, the Uh, cinematography is gorgeous. I mean, those fight scenes are truly incredible. Even if you just look at that opening shot with the credits running over it, Mm -hmm. the way that it's A in slow motion, but like you can see all that this depth of field that the smoke sort of adds and texture and the way the, the lights are flashing, you know, that are uh, presumably camera flashes, but obviously just, like, you know, some some light set up in the background is so interesting and, like, so compelling immediately that, like, you just Im- are immediately drawn in and, and ready to go on whatever journey that film is going to take you on. And it takes you on an incredible journey, really. Yeah. Like, even just the normal domestic scenes are beautifully <laughs> shot. Every... <laughs> every scene is really visually interesting it's it's part of what makes it so good but yeah the the boxing stuff is is so interesting because like every hit feels especially in that final sugar, ray fight feels mm-hmm. directed by character and uh what the film is ultimately doing in exploring that type of masculinity it's just so well crafted
2: yeah it really uh, like it feels so personal like when he's just telling him to hit me like he's just mm-hmm. like hit me hit me again It, like, you could tell, like, it really, like, means a lot to him, so Mm -hmm. it, um, it just, uh, it makes you, like, really more interested in the character.
1: It's so interesting coming so shortly after Rocky, because, like, boxing (laughs) movies were just, like, having this moment, essentially, and it's like a weird subversion of Rocky where Rocky is like, this, such a pure, we talked about it last in our last season, like it's such a pure, nice, well-intentioned movie. And then this one is just like, just a, a similarly entertaining on like a sports movie level, but just mm-hmm. like all the other scenes are just like, so disturbed. Basically.
2: It's like just yeah. a mean and gritty version, basically. Or like, it yeah. has that yeah. like grit to it the whole way through. Yeah. Even, um, like I um I forgot I forgot which one of you mentioned
1: this, but um <laughs> the domestic scenes have like that same level of intensity. I think like the scene that is most suspenseful is when and just like one of the best moments in I think Suicide's career is when they're in the hotel and Kathy Moriarty does not know if she wants to order dinner or not, and the two, like um, Joe Pesci and Daenerya, are like telling her different things about like, mm-hmm. and it becomes like this moment of like she like she, you and Kathy Moriarty so good in this scene of just thinking about like what should she pick and like what will be implications of that of her choice be and it's so so upsetting and suspenseful and i i just like the way he's able to make every scene carry the same intensity whether or not we actually like see violence on screen is is incredible
2: yeah, yeah. even and the build-up
0: violence... yeah go ahead
2: go ahead even the build-up to um him freaking out over uh his wife's uh affair with his, with joey pesci's character like the build-up of them just sitting there like talking about it is like crazy like you can like feel it how like raw it feels, or like the what's gonna ha- like it constantly makes you think like what is gonna happen, what, like what's he gonna do, like what's yeah, he because, gonna do when he snaps?
0: Because mm-hmm. up to that point, he's basically avoid that like they've basically avoided violence with like true violence in their own relationship. I mean, there's been this sort of mental and emotional abuse, but like that's that's the moment where you start to feel like oh, it's it's not gonna just t- get talked out at this point. Like something right. is going to happen, and then it you know it does. Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a brilliant film um we will certainly be talking about it more later uh anything else you guys want to talk about uh, with it before we move on to the next film
1: i'm good i'll I'll have more notes in the acting section
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well we definitely have reason to talk about it more um I was going to say let's do something lighter, but there is nothing technically lighter. In- I mean, there's one maybe, <laughs>
1: but I don't know. It's a, it's a depressing five movie. Yeah.
0: Dark here. Jesus. Um, let's talk about uh, Tess, directed by Roman, Roman Polanski, oh, uh, adapted from Tess of du- Duberville's um, uh, the Thomas Hardy novel. Um, as the Thomas Hardy fan in the group, Matt, why don't you uh, give us a rundown of what Tess is about and your thoughts?
1: Yes, um... As you mentioned, this is based on Thomas Hardy's novel, not to be confused with Tom Hardy. As someone in my English – I took – it was Victorian lit in college where we read two Thomas Hardy novels. And someone was like, the actor? And I was just – it was just like truly like one of the most surreal moments of my college career. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, um, um, this – Um, film and the book follows this young woman named tess i think she's 16 in the movie um and she essentially goes to work for this rich family that um and comes into the crosshairs of this predator in the family she's raped and has a child through that rape and um it essentially follows her trying to exist in this um six in this 17th century england where um the church's control just made it so difficult for the for any any woman in general but especially a woman who's a victim of sexual violence and a woman who was um forced who was forced to have this child like as an unwed mother um like the system was just set to for them to fail and it follows her going through various different chapters of her life after that incident and, uh, and trying to find a, a new husband. And it, it's bleak. It is three hours and very, very bleak. Um, I first watched the film shortly before I read Thomas Hardy's novels. Um, I just watched it one year when I, was in, when I was in college, and I liked it quite a bit. Um, problematic aspects aside, I enjoy many of Rome Plante's films, which is – Gross. But, um, <laughs> like he, like I really enjoyed this film at the time and I hadn't really thought about it much since then. And then I've read Thomas Hardy in college. Um, not tests, weirdly enough, um, tests, but I read, um, far from the Madden crowd, which is a great novel. And then Jude the obscure, which has never really been adapted. There's one like poor adaptation from the nineties that I don't even know if it's ever been released on home video, but, um, Julie Obscure blew my mind in college, and I it's like one of my top 10 favorite novels. I love it so much, I read it twice. Um, and I just really fell in love with the way Hardy writes novels. His books are so progressive and so angry for the time, like, they are so much about taking apart the, like, the systems of the patriarchy and, um, just the church, essentially it's very angry about workers' rights and religion and women's rights in a way that many authors didn't write at the time. And watching this now after having studied Thomas Hardy, I found the movie still effective because it is well-made, but I just wish it was angrier, which maybe is an unfair thing to hold it to because it's, you know, that's a problem as an adaptation, not as like a film in and of itself. I think the movie still works, but like, it is hard for me to take my English major hat off because I just like, I like, it's not a very, it's not very faithful in tone to what Thomas Hardy does as an author. Like it's, it's never really taking into account the systems that are holding, that that are making, making Tessa victim in beyond like a surface level. Like there's a scene of her going to a church to spoiler alert for this, for this film. Um, (laughs) going to a church to try to get a funeral for this um the the baby she had out of wedlock and because of um the rules of the time because the baby wasn't baptized it technically um couldn't be buried and also it was believed would probably be in hell and um she's trying to get a burial and they're just so horrible to her about it and it's all very surface level like it's aware that This, like, what she's going through is bad, but it's never really exploring the implications of it the way Hardy does. Like, the joke about Thomas Hardy is that he will have full pages of his novel devoted to describing, like, the setting and flowers and buildings and everything like that, which is true, but those chapters are very important because they're, like, fully offering a portrait of the time period. And this movie just never really does. And it's like, it's gorgeous to look at really well acted. Some of the best costumes I've ever seen in a movie, but I just wish it was a little more angry. Basically. I want a remake that's like righteously mad.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's an interesting angle to put on it. Cause like, for me, uh, like I know watching it, this was my first time watching it. Like I felt like uh, frustrated by it, but it, it, like i was angry the whole time but i was angry at the men she encounters who really represent the systems and like social mores that are what eventually you know make tess's life such a piece of shit like but i was angry at the characters when realistically there should be more emphasis on like this is the the they represent bigger things and let's think talk about those bigger things so like for instance, the guy that she sort of – who is her true love, I guess, um, Angel or whatever, is, is such a flaming pile of shit in my mind that I, like, couldn't enjoy any of their, like, supposed love story that I was just like, fuck that guy. He should have died in Brazil or whatever. Like, I hate him. <laughs> um, especially because, like, Nastasya Kinski is, like, so good in this film. mm mm-hmm. So, like she's just so sympathetic and and the performance is so strong and and like layered and and everyone else in, in comparison, even performance wise wise like like pales. so I just like I don't know it was I got so angry at it. Like I was just furious, <laughs> fuming for three hours where right? I just was like, I can't believe I didn't have a heart attack. I was so angry. Um, Tom, what's your experience with Tess, Have you read the book and or is this your first time uh, watching it? et cetera
2: first time um i it's funny you said you were angry i felt a little bored watching this for three <laughs> hours and it's funny like matt the movie you described or the the book at least that sounded way better than the thing i i watched um, <laughs> I, just <feel> that. <laughs> I just felt it was so devoid of emotion like i would i agree with you i wish that anger was there or had a presence itself because i felt like it was i enjoyed the story i enjoyed um the lead performance. I love the cinematography. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when she's walking up to the, the mansion for the first time, it looks like a fantasy movie. Like it looks awesome. Um, But for me, the, the tone of the movie just like, was like non-existent. Like I didn't know how to, (sighs) like, I just didn't connect to what was, it like just felt slow. Essentially. Like everything about this movie felt slow for me. Mm -hmm. I felt all three of those hours. it was, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it that's was so funny
1: because i both times i watched this it's definitely it's a long movie and i actually um for various reasons had to break up this rewatch because um i was doing something else so like i watched it in like three chunks basically uh-huh. and um but like it is funny because like costume problems like this are my Like marvel movies basically Mm -hmm. so like for me i was like give me this like i'll watch five hours of her walking (laughs) that hat basically (laughs) um but i can understand it is like it's devoid of emotion like i said it really feels so reserved and i'm like no it shouldn't be reserved it should be like screaming basically i
2: would have loved that i really like it would have made me feel so connected to the material more because i feel like um I'm forgetting the actress's mm-hmm. name, the The lead actress. Nastasia Kinski. Yes. Um, Nastasia, she does a great job. Um, like, I do think that that choice to be more subtle maybe was an intentional choice because of, like, the time period it takes in or yeah. that it's set in, that, like, she can't be emotional in that time period. Otherwise, she'd be looked even more down upon. Sure. So, like, I, I think maybe that was part of, like, Polanski's, like, thought when he was interpreting the material. But like, even the way you described the novel, Matt, like that sounded like way more interesting. Like I connected to that more than I did uh, (laughs) the movie. Listen, read his novels. There's only three and they're so they're so good. I will
1: talk to (laughs) if anyone wants to read any of those novels, just DM me on any social media account. We can talk about it. I will gladly talk to Thomas Hardy. I That's my be. new podcast, Talking Thomas. <laughs>
0: it's three whole episodes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited. Look for it in 2020 on Spotify.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I would absolutely be on the episode about that far from the Madding Crowd um, adaptation from a couple years ago. That was like the, one of the best things I've ever seen. I think about it all the time. It's so um, good. So- about, I have a find pink- and watching the and happened. afterwards you were just like um why was that the best movie ever like I don't understand why no one was there like super it, it was just so good and it Mattia was the same
1: day as Age of Ultron and I went <laughs> instead of Age of Ultron <laughs> I, was <laughs> like, I was like this is important <laughs> oh
0: man um we should talk about any, I think the last thought I have about uh, that, that film is that the cinematography is great and it's that is the one of the best things about it, but it's a great looking film, but I just, I I think based on everything we've said, there's like a lot, not, there's just something missing from it in general, but it won best cinematography and best art direction, set decoration and best costume design, which, you know, all makes sense. Those are all of the best things about it. Like the technical stuff. Um, It just didn't win the big awards. Um, And it partially, maybe that is because of the whole Polanski of it all, because this was, Right around the time he fled the country. So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, based on what we know about Hollywood, maybe that nobody cared at that point in history. But I'm going to choose to believe that it did, you know, uh, have an effect. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's move on to uh, The Elephant Man. Um, Tom, why don't you give a description of the the plot and your thoughts on it?
2: So this film uh, is from David Lynch. Mm-hmm. and it basically follows the i don't know how true the story is compared to the film but it does follow a semi-true story i guess at least of uh this doctor who um finds a guy who is uh he's like currently making it as like a well, I shouldn't say making it as a circus freak uh and he has elephantitis that's the name of the disease right mm-hmm. that's why i guess the name right so and he's dubbed as uh, the elephant man and the film basically follows um like their friendship and uh how he treats him compared to other people essentially. Yes. Um
0: John Hurt plays John Merrick the the guy who is uh has the elephantitis and he had to wear a bunch of prosthetics and makeup and Anthony Hopkins plays the um the doctor. Frederick Traves, or yeah, The Doctor. Um, and Anne Bancroft in, is in it. Uh, and the reason she's in it, by the way, is because uh, Mel Brooks produced this whole thing and then handed it to David Lynch to direct, mm. and ba- Anne Bancroft is his wife. And I don't know, just the idea that Mel Brooks is involved in this film is so wild to me because it's, like, <laughs> so serious and, and right. you know, it's a not, Lynch film.
2: Not um, a comedy. No, not, not
0: even remotely. <laughs> um, Matt, or... Uh, was this your first time watching it, and, uh, Tom? And what were what were your thoughts on it?
2: I this is the first time in a while. I'd last seen it in like some film class I took, probably one of like sure. my first film classes I took. Um, I again, I love black and white cinematography. I think it's great here too. Um, I love this film a lot. I think it's very, I think it's very complex in talking about um, people who are deformed or look different or things like that. Like it's never um, exactly, I guess. It's is an ironic way to say it black and white essentially <laughs> but um i i really like anthony hopkins in this he's he himself is actually very reserved in this compared to other films that he's been in and um i really like how it slowly builds uh their friendship and that uh and like how essentially to treat um people who look a little different i think it's very effective in doing it too mm.
0: um Matt, you uh, – I know initially were never a fan of this film, but how did that – did that change at all on the re- on your rewatch or what did you think of the film?
1: Yeah, it was funny. I just I – re- I remember writing it a few years ago. It was one of like the first movies I logged, on, I logged on Letterboxd. And if you go back and look at that first review, it shows how much my like criteria for films <laughs> has changed because a lot of things I held against it are just like not things I give a shit about now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> like – I, I I really appreciate. It. I'm Lynch is one of my big blind spots as a director. So this this and the Straight Story are the only films of his I have seen, which is wild because they're like the only two that are not remotely like the rest of his filmography. <laughs> like the most commercial
0: um, pictures he's done too.
1: Yeah, like it's like I don't know why I just like saw them and I was like I'll do the rest eventually. But um, but it's it's definitely more effective than I gave it credit for back when I first watched it, and it um it's very well done. I. The cinematography is wonderful. Like um, you mentioned, Tom, like the – the um, it has like this like dreamlike quality to it in certain mm-hmm. moments. It's really interesting and effective and feels like very um, – from what I understand to be Lynchian. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and um, you know, it's well acted. It's very well done. It gets a little bit too conventional in the middle and not – now that it's a bad thing that it gets conventional, like I, I – I don't think it would be – if the movie was trying to serve this conventional narrative the entire time, that wouldn't be a problem. But I think the first and the third act almost have that dreamlike quality to it. Very subtly, mm-hmm. but like it it feels a little heightened. And then when you have like this long stretch in the middle that feels a little more conventional, it just kind of like hurts the flow of the movie for me. But I still find it very effective. Uh, Hurt is incredible in it. Um, yes. I Like a really wonderful performance. and. I'm always very hit or miss on Anthony Hopkins. And it's funny because in my initial review I said he was like very like sleepwalking through it. But then I I I wrote that before Westworld came out and I like weirdly yeah. that was the first thing I saw I thought of I was like I'm like, oh, we didn't even know where he would go, like in terms of sleepwalking through a performance. So I was like, Oh, he's good here, I think. Like uh hurts definitely like the MVP, but I mean definitely but, like of course because he has like the juicier role, but he but Hopkins is good.
0: This is the, like the low-key shadiest you've ever been on a podcast, and I'm really excited <laughs> for this. Um, <laughs> I did not know that about your, like, Lynch knowledge, and that that fucking blows my mind. Because I, I, I think the first Lynch I watched was um, Blue Velvet, and I watched it for a class, but I was excited to watch it because – that is the poster Mark, Mark Ruffalo's character in 13 Going on 30 has on a wall. Oh, um, I, I'm, I have watched 13 Going on 30. <laughs> I can hear you getting the DVD out now. Um, <laughs> but this is the first time I watched this. I've seen a lot of Lynch's stuff, uh, mostly his weird shit. I haven't seen the straight story, which I mentioned in the podcast ages ago when we talked about that year. Um And like, I kind of, it's a shame I didn't see the more conventional stuff first, because I probably would have uh, gotten, I mean, I think, I think Lynch is something you shouldn't watch too early on, honestly, uh, because I've hated a lot of his stuff. But I think like things that I've rewatched, I like a lot more now. Like, um,
1: it's just so, like most of his work, honestly. (laughs) That's (laughs) why I have been so hesitant to get into them. And I'm very happy I didn't when I was like, in like, back in 2013, 2014, because I know I wouldn't have. Got in them, so I'm just like I'm always like afraid to watch them because I'm like, what if I don't get them?
0: <laughs> yeah, I and I was like, men are fucking canceled. What is this? Like, I don't understand why all the boys I know, like, tim told me this is good. They are full of garbage. um I'm sure it's fine. I'd have to rewatch it, but I don't know. It's a high on the list. Um, anyway, uh, the Elephant Man. First time I watched it for this. Um, I really liked it. Uh, the storytelling, I agree, gets, like, for me, too loose in the second half where it's just like, all right, like, where where is this going? Can we get to, you know, the climax or whatever at some point more more quickly, a little quicker? But I don't know. B- before all that, before it, throughout, it's really interesting as a character study of this person who is treated horribly and then um, sort of has this arc of, A, being treated like a human – and be um, finding self worth and, and fighting for that self worth, but also like learning to trust realistically, um, which is a major you know element of that character's development. Um, and then the whole time, the cinematography is really just incredible. Like it's just so gorgeous. And and having seen Eraserhead, it's a it's a sort of similar aesthetic with a lot of. With the black and white and the sort of smokiness of it all but it's Mm -hmm. it's just gorgeous filmmaking it's i think i mean i watched it early on in this so it's maybe not i think in comparison to everything else it's not i like a a couple other things more probably but i think it's totally solid and ages very well and yeah it's just a really damn fine piece of filmmaking um anything else you want to jump into on it before we jump into the last one guys
1: did either of you? I'm interested in knowing. See the Bradley Cooper production when it was on Broadway.
2: I, you know, it's funny. I saw that. Uh, I didn't see it, but I thought it was. I saw that he was in that. And I thought that was so interesting to me.
0: Yeah, he doesn't do it with any makeup either. He just it was just like him on a stage, like that's it, because it was like a one man show. Um, uh, but yeah, so it was like hot, f- fucking hot as shit. Bradley Cooper on a stage being the Elephant Man. So, but I heard it was very good. Just, but it just for context
1: yeah
0: yeah it's, it's supposed to be
1: excellent um well he I don't tried know. to make
0: a movie of it i think for a little while but it never never got off the ground
1: i think if i remember correctly it was like his um like drama school like um thesis mm-hmm. almost like doing mm-hmm. the so like i i think he has like a personal connection to it and i don't know like let him do it just don't let todd phillips anywhere near <laughs> like <laughs> that's my main my main thing <laughs> Well,
0: Bradley's a director now, so he could do it himself. Yeah, um, true. All right, let's move to the last one, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter. It is a biopic about Loretta Lynn, the country singer, um, starring Sissy Spacek, and uh, Tommy Lee Jones with dyed blonde hair. Um, oh, as my gosh. <laughs> as her, there's a lot of hair choices in this film, um, but it is country <laughs> music, so what can you expect? Um, as her husband, uh, Doolittle uh, Lynn, Who's a? Uh, he's in the military when he, and older than her. Um, she's she's fourteen when the film starts, and Sissy plays that um, convincingly. I mean, Sissy Spacek is a fucking chameleon. She can just play a teenager whenever she wants. It's fucking wild. <laughs> she's like thirty and Carrie. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so it's a biopic about um, they meet uh, in Kentucky when they're when she's fourteen and he's in his twenties. Um, they get married uh, and then she slowly becomes a country star. Um, I had never seen it. Um, I don't know a ton about Loretta Lynn. I know a little bit about like her and Patsy Cline. Um, I mean, I like country music, whatever, but the thing is, listening to the, watching the film, you realize how many of her songs you probably have heard because they're just part of the American songbook. Mm -hmm. Um, But I quite liked this one. Um, It's an interesting biopic in that it doesn't sort of focus on the traditional events in the way that a normal biopic would like think of something like, um, I always want to say fucking walk hard, but it's walk the line um, (laughs) every goddamn time. Walk the line where it's like, um, you're sort of hitting these set points in his life. Uh, fulsome, you know, blah, 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 blah. There's also this love story that runs parallel to it, but this is almost like, here are some events that also happen around the central romance, essentially. And the romance is, is a sort of fascinating, um, for me, at least, uh, a product of a time period in mid century, um, America where it, you look at it now and Tommy Lee Jones's character is, is a, a monster person. Cause he is, he's constantly cheating on her <laughs> and he's, uh, there's basically the scene, the film uh, very early on, there's a scene of marital rape, which is shocking that it's on screen, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, But also like these people were married forever and Loretta Lynn was involved in the film making and like only allowed it to be made if the story was truthful. So like that shit apparently happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, it should constantly make you root against him. But the film the whole time is saying like, no, this is, This is a, an important relationship that, and, you know, Doolittle's despite his many, many flaws is someone that was important to her career. I mean, he's the person who buys her a guitar and says like, Hey, I want you to perform in this club or not a club. It's a honky tonk, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) and then says like, let's get you a record, all of this stuff. And you almost have to look at it like now it's not progressive at all, but back then it would have been wildly progressive for this, this character to essentially say, I want you to have a career despite mm-hmm. our children. And, and the film is sort of about that, about she starts as a child who is being told what to do by her father. And I mean, it's important that the film is called a coal miner, the coal miner's daughter um, and by her husband, but then slowly becomes a, the breadwinner in her family and be someone who has parody in in that relationship um and like how progressive that would have been in country music especially but in for women in general in the 40s to the 60s like that's that's unheard of essentially and you know yes she gets cheated on but she immediately turns out into a hit song about like you know, if you, you think you're going to take that, my man, you're not shit lady. <laughs> like it's not the right person to be angry with, but it's a damn fine song. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It's fascinating. Cause like, I think in any, if it weren't handled in the way it is, I, I might given anyone who's listened to this podcast, like m- might hate that, that Tommy Lee Jones character more, but I. I, I'm fascinated by the, like, sort of bizarrely feminist picture that it paints. I mean, this is 1980. Feminism is, the movement is very young still at this point. And, like, realistically, what was open to women in mid-century except this kind of, I don't know, this this kind of, this is the best a marriage could be. Like, he supports her career, and at one point, the, the journey of his character is that he has to become someone who, early on after the marital rape scene, she says something like, you know, you just need to learn to be gentle with me and like, give me time. And that's essentially what he eventually has to do with her as a a star who is basically starting to fall apart because she's too fucking famous. And she just needs someone to like, work in her interests, which is a I don't know, it's a fascinating thing to hear to a see it happen and be for that her character to articulate that. And then for him to listen. So I don't know, it's fascinating. And, you know, in real life, they had like six kids and they were married until he died in 96. So I don't know, it's it's bizarre um uh matt why don't you uh talk about
1: it yeah um i so i apparently first saw this movie at some point in like 2013 2014 but i truly didn't remember seeing it <laughs> like i um was surprised when i saw that i logged in a letterboxd in order to full review but um i love to see basic in general um we'll we'll talk about it eventually on another episode in the future season but in the bedrooms are one of my favorite movies of all time i think she's get like, one of my favorite performances of all time from her in it and um i'm just a huge huge fan of hers and that like this movie for for me comes from a genre that i don't particularly care about it's like you, like you know i i hate to be the type to be like oh like it's so conventional but for some reason like the conventions of the music biopic just do not work for me with like the only exception I could think of is walk the line, honestly. And like, even that it's more like a reserved affection for like for, for that film, because I like the two actors a lot. And, um, I don't know, for some reason that, that genre really doesn't usually work for me. And that's why I think in in this film, I just like both times based on my original letterboxd review that I'm going off and then this current rewatch, um, I I think it's it's entertaining in in its own um right. It is in its own way and I can understand especially with people that are fans of hers or fans of country music, which I'm I'm not um getting something out of it and finding it entertaining, but for for me it was more just like a a passive sort of experience. I I think a big problem is that I find the directing very passive both in the way um the like the marital rape is handled, which of course there's the whole historical context for what that scene meant back in eighty versus what it means today, yeah. but and it, it, even more so what it meant in the time that it's depicting. But um, like just like even just the admiration for her career feels very passive. It all just feels very much like a rundown, like a, a filmed rundown of her life and there's not like the passion for her career in behind the camera that I feel like it should have for like, like I like in so often with musical biopics, it takes like one of two routes of um, intense celebration for a person. And then more often than not, like the downward spiral look of like, look at this talented, but troubled person. And this one should be very celebratory. And it just like, doesn't feel that way about, about her life, like and her career, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I, it just, it felt so cold to me, and I think that holds me off from appreciating it even more than um, I do, just because I don't like the genre very much. Yeah, but I was—that's
0: a, I'm so, that's a like a, a incorrect way to look at it. I mean, there is mm-hmm. like, it does feel like the movie assumes that you know about her. Life, which i'm sure more people did in 1980 yeah um but also michael apted is a is most known as a documentarian have you ever seen any other apted stuff matt
1: i i would have to look um okay. but
0: he did yeah. um the six the seven up series which is every seven years he follows the same group of um, school children essentially now i mean now they're 63 the <sighs> 63 what the 63 up is coming out this year um I missed all the press screenings for it and I've never forgiven anyone else. <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm devastated. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, the, he does one every seven years and he's just following these people. So he's technically more experienced as a documentarian and you can sort of, that passiveness is about, I think there is, that is part of his style is that he is not very usually creating a narrative live realistically. I mean, the whole point of those, that, that series is that you see what happened, like, like, there's this saying or whatever that's like, you see a child at seven and I'll show you the man basically. So like the, uh, the concept is that when you're seven, you are already who you are going to be, which is (laughs) heinous, but I mean, not it turns out not to be too different. Um, But yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, that, that is part of his filmmaking style on some level. Like, I don't know. It's, it's sort of a, it may be just because of the way he, he does things.
1: You know? Um I want to see those documentaries now. Those sound fascinating. And mm-hmm. I am looking at his filmography on Letterboxd, and what a fascinating career. Yeah. Um Homeowner's Daughter is the only one that I have seen, even though enough with Jennifer Lopez has been on my list of movies to see for a very long time. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's pretty good, actually. Uh, enough he also did a Bond and a Narnia movie, which is fascinating.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's right. He did one of the Brosnan movies, didn't he? <laughs> he did. He did um <laughs> The World is Not Enough.
1: That's the worst one. And- <laughs> <laughs> and he did the Chronicles of Narnia: Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I did not know existed. <laughs> um, Actually, what anyway. is not
0: enough isn't bad. There's that great line about Christmas coming once a year. Oh gosh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you um, know it. <laughs> oh, I know. But um, but um, I will just say, not a huge fan of the movie. But I will say, um, Sissy Spacek and Tommy Lee Jones are both really, really, really good in it. Yeah, like another- excellent
2: performances.
0: Um Tom, what are your uh what are your thoughts on colemaner's daughter, experience with Apted, you know, all that jazz.
2: So this is the first time I saw it. I went in totally blind. It's actually interesting talking about the direction being passive. I actually just uh I was thinking about this in my head with like comparing it to uh to Honey Boy. Because mm-hmm. um Alma Harrell is also a documentary and shoot this was her first feature. And I think the thing with it is uh or what I noticed with that movie, and I think i was thinking about it here just thinking the same thing that like i think it's passive in the sense that it wants to tell a story or like it didn't want i think he didn't want to uh like get in the way of telling loretta's story and i Mm. think that's what i like about it so much like uh, for this movie it felt so personal and raw in a sense that it didn't have to focus on all the music to to make me care about loretta or so interested in her story or even her relationship with Doolittle um i think that's what i liked so much about rocket man as well was Mm. that it didn't have to uh focus on all the music to make me care or to like invest me into the the musician story or the character story it was more so that like i cared about them as a person like i love the arc of her uh starting so quiet and being so like um reserved and told what to do and like the you can see her growing stronger and stronger really throughout the film um like even when she does that like first radio interview and like she just can't stop talking like i love that scene so much i think it like it really bodes to sissy spacex performance to like really show that that arc in a sense
0: yeah um she's a phenomenal performer and like i I feel like every movie i watch of i'm like god damn sissy spacex is good (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's, um, we could actually, I have a note, but we, we can talk about it um when we get to best actress, but I just, sure. her career, her career is fascinating. I have a lot to say. <laughs>
0: yeah. The shit she does is like all over, like every fucking genre. And she sings in this film, which like, I was like, when it, when I, when it started, I was like can sissy's basic sing like why is she cast in this and i was like okay guess you can She's
2: great in this. (laughs) she really is i i was so it's funny because i'm not like a country music person but i loved all the music in this and i thought she was uh i thought she was great yeah it's it's
0: funny i i'm i don't usually think of myself as a country music person but i became one in the last i don't know 10 years or so Mm -hmm. and there was a moment where um i went to nashville earlier this year and i was at a work conference so i had no time to do anything but the one thing i did do on like a 10 you know an hour break from all the conference bullshit i went to one record store and it happens to be the record store that she performs in when she does a uh, Patsy klein's song and i, oh, I like okay. when the when the camera was like <laughs> like dolly or uh crane down to it i was like holy shit i've been in there like it blew my mind um but yeah i lo- i mean i'm a am bizarrely i'm seeing a country man on the weekend so what can i say um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's a really great film, uh, or a really great performance in a, a film I quite like. But you know, uh, you, you don't—you're not required, Matt. Um,
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy I still have a job. <laughs> it doesn't go on
0: the on the list of Matt movies. Matt has to apologize for hating at one point. No strikes um, against you. I'm so happy. <laughs> uh, all right, let's pick our. Uh, we're going to go on to the the category specifically, like, but let's go through. Um,
1: uh, our picks for best picture for the year. Um, Matt, how about you? Um, it's really close, but I I have to go with Raging Bull. I will say I I think Ordinary People is a very deserving winner, and I think as with so many movies from the Oscar history, especially like from 1980 to the present, it's like unfairly maligned and based on a lot of sexist shit, but um, I do really, Raging, like any movie that bothers me that much, I'm just like, damn it, I have to give it. <laughs> like, it's like, the fact that I was so disturbed, but also so compelled. Yeah. Tom, how about you?
2: Um, I actually like to stick with ordinary people. I think there's just something about Raging Bull that's so, and I think it's just a, re- a retrospective with Scorsese in general, that like, it's so familiar. Like, even when I was watching it, a lot of the dialogue, like the way he directs dialogue is very just like, familiar and there's something about ordinary people to me that's just so timeless and like it, it's just like it really like it it doesn't feel a part of its time in a sense it's even if this was made like 20 years before in the same way with everything like it would still be just as timeless as it is now you know
0: yeah yeah no I mean it's it's interesting that you say that because I I re watch Raging Bull right after I saw The Irishman the other night, and, like, I felt the same thing of, like, wow, there's so many established patterns in, in Scorsese's film that, films that, like, when you watch them all at once sort of, like, feel exposed in a way that, I don't know, it's – it, you're right. Ordinary people does feel like its own thing in a way. Um, I I, give, I would give it to – like, I'm such – for me, I think it might be a familiarity bias that I like Coal Miner's Daughter as much as I – or a, a recency bias and also, like – the other two I've seen twice, at least. Um, I think Ordinary People have actually seen three times. But, like, <laughs> I don't know. I really like – like, Raging Bull is so good, and I think it is the best film of Scorsese's career, so it's really tough. But, I don't know. I don't want to, like, give – I don't want to give anybody advantage, so I'm just going to do Coal Miner's Daughter because I can't make a decision. <laughs> I'm not going to, like – <laughs> yeah exactly i do love when we split and i just don't want to be canceled or regret this in a couple of years so i'm just gonna mm. i'm taking the the easy way out um <laughs> no shame
2: <laughs> in it they're gonna, they're gonna
1: find the receipts and cancel it <laughs> i don't want to be canceled i already have when the marvel canceled. fanboys take over the government and they, <laughs> they they find me and put me in jail for liking a sexy movie exactly <laughs> this is really just my bid to to get like
0: early tickets to 70 up uh, when it comes out in the seven years. <laughs> um, hit me up, Michael Apted. Um, okay. Let's move on to the big six awards. Um, let's start with director. Uh, winner was Robert Redford for ordinary people. David Lynch was dire- um, nominated for the elephant man. Martin Scorsese for reaching bull, Richard rush for the stuntman and Roman Polanski for Tess. Um Tom, did you watch the stuntman? Cause I know Matt and I did.
2: Uh, I didn't get a chance to.
0: Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of stuff this year. Um, th- just a quick down, rundown of the stuntman. It is a, it's based on a novel. Um, oh, it's about um, a convict on the run. Uh, or well, he's a ex Vietnam soldier who is on the run from the police, and he stumbles on a movie set, um, during a stunt, and um, the regular stuntman uh, dies in an accident. So. The director sees the, the convict and says, uh, hey, want to be in this movie? We need a stuntman, and I'll hide you from the police. And then he becomes a stuntman. And every scene is sort of um. you never know what's real because you don't know if he's filming. And sometimes you realize he's filming, and sometimes you realize it's not filming. And sometimes it's – um, like there are character motivations that you don't understand. Peter O'Toole plays the director of the film mm. who is – clearly a little nuts and possibly trying to kill uh the stuntman as well um barbara hershey is in it as a uh the actress in the film who like <laughs> first thing we see her doing is like a dog food commercial uh, and it's like <laughs> but she's like sexy in it so it's it's you know normal marketing realistically um but it
2: sounds like a uh it almost sounds like a tarantino movie honestly
0: it absolutely is a film that he would have made. Yeah. Um, he, I'm sure he's seen, seen it and loves it.
2: But Sounds awesome, honestly. Oh, it's phenomenal. Um, it's so good.
1: It's, it and it's so available good. for free on Tubi, which is a streaming site I've never heard of before. But well, I now love. I watched it on. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> um,
0: love Tubi. Love it. Uh, it's got a lot of commercials, though. But, you know, I don't mind. Um, but, yeah, the Stuntman is fascinating. And it, it's uh, of, you know, if, if someone from the from – the the picture winner or nominees didn't have to get nominated i mean I'm, I'm glad it was for richard rush because man it's a fascinating film um that said actually that is who i would give it to frankly although i mean i i feel bad about that because martin scorsese probably should have won one way before the departed and this is probably his best film but like i don't know i'm gonna just keep going with my um you know <laughs> recency bias slash like newness bias and just pick the stuntman because it's such a fascinating movie that I just had never heard of and that impressed the shit out of me like what a find um mm. Tom how about you
2: well for my ringing endorsement of Tess, you could tell I'm not gonna pick uh <laughs> Polanski but uh it's <laughs> t- <laughs> I mean he's a criminal it's totally <laughs> not- <laughs> <laughs> um I, I just have such a fondness for Robert Redford. It's such like a... You know what? I'm such a big dialogue person, too, that um, I feel like when you direct good dialogue, like it really like syncs with me better. So I I just... I gotta pick Robert Redford.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: uh, and I'm gonna go with Cersei, but I will <laughs> use my time to... Instead of gushing about him again, I will just say, second everything, The Stuntman is incredible, and everybody should go watch it. I was so impressed by it. Yeah, I loved it. I was like, and it's oh. a very close second for best director for me. Yeah,
0: um, no, it's. I mean, hey, we're this is what a year we're all going to just go on random shit. Uh, <laughs> I love it because uh, last time Matt and I were super boring and agreed on like everything. I think
1: <laughs> last time was <laughs> one of the worst years we've done though. So. <laughs>
0: yeah, right, There are like two two good movies of the fourteen we watched. It was like these are the only two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh let's see let's do actor next um robert de niro was uh one for raging bull jack lemon was nominated for tribute which i didn't see um john hurt for the elephant man peter o'toole for the stuntman um robert duvall in the great santini um matt do you want to tell the people what the great santini is about and then um and then pick your winner
1: I don't want to talk about it, but I will.
0: Um, the great... <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to eat so even...
1: <laughs> The Great Santini is based on a novel by Pat Conroy. Apparently it's based on his real relationship with his father, which yikes. Um, <laughs> and it is about this father-son relationship where um, <laughs> um, Robert Duvall is this lieutenant in the army and he has this really hostile relationship with his um children and his wife and the son played by Michael O'Keefe, is trying to exert some sort of dominance over his father as they get older and I think I'm probably making it sound a little more interesting than it is um <laughs> it has it has one really brilliant scene in it, and then where I was like, "Oh, maybe I'm going to enjoy this," and then it just i I did not um <laughs> it tricked basketball you. the scene yes, the basketball <laughs> scene, yes. I was like, this is a great moment. Am I going to like this movie? And then I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to. Never mind. <laughs> um, and I wanted to watch Tribute because I love Jack Bowman, but I just don't think it's available anywhere. Like, I I looked high and low, but I could not find it. Um, my pick for Best Actor is De Niro, of course. <laughs> like, I'm just going to fully stand um, Raging Bull, I guess. But, you know, it's like – it's a transformative performance, but not in the way that – like so often men do I think like yes he did gain and lose a lot of a a lot of weight and he's in like both the best shape of his life and also the worst shape of his life at different (laughs) different scenes but um it's just like it's very it's everything that we like about him as an actor it's like that bottled up intensity and the intimidation and like weirdly there's like a like a charisma to him in the sense that he's like a terrible person but you can understand why the people in his life we're so like magnetized by him and everything. And it's a really hard act to pull off. And I think I've seen most of De Niro's like major films. And I think it's probably his best performance. So like I haven't seen Cape Fear in a very long time, which is like mm. his other one that I hear mentioned a lot. But I think I'm going to go with um, um, like this is his best and I'm going to give him the win. Cape
0: Fear is very campy, but it, it's still a very good performance. <sighs> I saw it um,
1: when I was very young, and it traumatized me.
0: That is a weird <laughs> choice by your parents.
1: Sometimes no, they did wonder. not know, and I was like, okay. I, I regretted it greatly. I
0: was going to say that doesn't sound like them from everything I've
1: heard.
0: No, um, I
2: snuck
1: it, and I regretted it.
0: You, Tom,
2: what about you? Well, you're not going to stand alone, Matt. I'm going to go oh, yeah. with Robert De Niro as well. It's just such a good performance. It's hard to uh, it's hard to to say no to it, and like. For me, I I really love. It's like you said, that bottled up intensity. I think it's something that is hard to pull off, or hard to pull off genuine without like immediately catching it. And he really like sucks you into to everything. Even if it's just like him and Pesci just talking, or when he's in the ring, like it's just such a, a such a fun performance to connect to. And even when you like hate Jake or you really like disgusted by him, it's just hard not to. It's like what people say about a bad car accident. It's hard to look away.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yeah yeah um we're gonna go three for three on this one uh De Niro as well I mean it's (laughs) like (laughs) it's undeniable it is such a brilliant performance and like you know I really like Peter O'Toole and the stuntman it's like Probably one of my favorite performances I've ever seen from him, but this is that's fucking category fraud. He's not. I was going to
1: bring it up. Yeah,
2: <laughs> that's not
0: the lead actor. Like, shut the fuck up. That is such <laughs> bullshit. I, I mean, I'd even argue Duvall really isn't the the lead actor of of that of Santini. Yeah, it's it's O'Keefe, but whatever. We'll talk about that again in a second. Um, <laughs> yeah, De Niro is like he's incredible in it. Like, I always think. um there, there's something so, and there's watching this and, and something like uh, once upon a time in America, there's something so, uh, and I'm sure he's a nice guy in real life, although he did scowl at me on the street once, but um, <laughs> I like, there's something so cruel in his, some of his performances and like this and, and once upon a time in America are like, he, there's something so dangerous about him. And like, I'm sure he's perfectly charming in real life you know, if he were such a monster, he probably wouldn't have kept working. Well, I, I guess I can't say that. But um, like he just really sells the shit out of this here, mm-hmm. and like I don't know, it's it, Jake is such a chilling character, and and to especially sell like the the difference between young Jake and old Jake is like such brilliant performance work. Like the scene late in the film when he sees Joe Pesci's character on the street. Is so like heartbreaking, even yeah. and the fact that he can make you feel that way after he's been such a fucking monster <laughs> is like a testament to how good that performance is. Mm-hmm. Um, let's do supporting actor next. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, supporting actor, uh, the winner was Timothy Hutton in Ordinary People, um, category fraud, Jason oh, Robards to the fullest, so, <laughs> most <laughs> Jason Robards for Melvin and Howard. Absolutely a supporting performance, but also really a cameo because he's in it for about <laughs> 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, that like, that's just insane to me. Um, Joe Pesci in Raging Bull, Judd Hirsch in Ordinary People, and Michael O'Keefe in The Grand Santini. Also category fraud. Um, this is the most category fraud we've possibly ever seen. It's uh, deeply
2: offensive. Um, Tom, who's your pick? Um. It's really a hard pick between. Honestly, like, God, I love Hersh in it so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm gonna stick to Tim- Timothy Hutton, even though it's complete bullshit. He is absolutely the main character of that movie. I don't understand how they could possibly pick him as right, a supporting actor. actor if it's not him. <laughs> I, I,
0: it's
2: ridiculous. It was honestly like the uh, I felt that way about the favorite last year, mm. where like. Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone were more the main character and the ma- the majority character than Olivia Coleman. I was happy she won, but yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it is a little bit of
0: category fraud, though. <laughs>
2: um, I, yeah, I'm definitely picking Timothy Hutton. There's just something it's. I think exactly what we said before. Like he's so raw in it, and he um honestly, if I could give the award to Timothy and Judd, I really would because like their scenes are just so incredible. Yeah. And like, there's so much emotion being built in it, and like, the way it spills over when um his friend commits suicide is like it's so real and raw, and like you really like it's kind of the moment when like you lean it- into your chair more because you're so like invested into it. You like really get on the edge of your seat for it.
0: Yeah, that subplot is so good. I like one I and the thing one, thing I remember most about it for the most part, um um matt how about you also do you want to talk about melvin and howard i mean i can i just hated it so much that
1: i i definitely i saw your i I bought melvin and howard on dvd actually because (laughs) that's to be a completist but also they're talking about it on blank check soon and that's i love that podcast i wanted to be prepared for that but um yeah i liked it more than you but i definitely didn't like this movie has a huge fan base and i i don't quite get where that fan base is coming from it um it follows this this man named melvin who is played by a let me get the name up paul lamette paul lamette who is this down on his luck really poor man um who makes con, continues to make horrible choices He's and the it,
0: dumbest person who's ever lived yeah. i mean it's a real it's a real true story Um, I don't know if the real guy is this annoying, but
1: man, (laughs) he's awful in the film. (laughs) And basically the main plot, they really wait until like the last 40 minutes to get it started. But um, early in the film, he gives this old man a ride who claims he's Howard Hawks, played by Jason Robards. Howard Hughes. um, Howard Hughes. Oh, Howard Hughes. I'm sorry. Who did I say? (laughs) Hawks. Oh, okay. (laughs) My bad. Um, Were you thinking of Hudson Hawk? (laughs) (laughs) um no he gives this old man a ride who claims to be howard hughes but he um like melvin just kind of writes him off as being this like crazy old man and then months if not like i i don't don't remember the time frame but like uh, sometime later he finds out that he's been written into howard hughes will, and these people are contesting it and it um I, I think it it has one performance that's incredible that we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, the rest of the movie really didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, um, my pick for supporting actor, I, I love Timothy Hutton, but I cannot acknowledge the category. It's bothering me too, too much. So I will go with Joe Pesci. But um, Judd Hirsch is also great. And it's a borderline lead and supportive performance. But Michael O'Keefe is pretty good in Grace Antonini, I think. I, I've never seen him in anything since then. So like wait, you haven't seen Caddyshack? I've never seen Caddyshack, no.
0: What
1: the <gasps> fuck? <laughs> Sorry. Gats- i am really <laughs> picky with comedies. I've like I've avoided so many comedies because I'm like I'm like I don't know if I'll find it funny. But I, I'll get mm. to, I will watch that eventually. Um and you know, but you know, um Joe Pesci, I, I love him. He's such a good such a good actor in mm. so many things.
0: This is, like, the most, like, um, film bro you've ever been, but now that you've, like, negated... You, like, countered that by not ever seeing
1: Caddyshack. Because um, you've got, like, <laughs> Raging Bull all the
2: way. Um, it's like,
1: so against character for me, but I just love it, this movie so much. It really <laughs>
0: <is>. <laughs> But then you're, like, as if you knew you were getting too film bro-y. I love it. Um, I also have... I mean, it's, like... Uh, Timothy Hutton's, like, performance is so good, but, like on some level I wonder if, like, historically if he hadn't won it, maybe he would have just, like, had a more interesting career. Which is mean to say, but also, sorry, like, it's true. Um, so, like, I don't know. It's it's kind of a, a competition between Pesci and, and Hirsch for me. Um, even though I really also liked Michael O'Keefe in, in Santini. Um, but I, I, I don't know. It's, I, my heart right now says Hirsch, so I'm gonna go with Hirsch. Um, yeah. I don't know. They're just, it's like a pretty solid year, honestly. Like even though there's a shitload of category fraud fraud, it is one of the better supporting actor years. Cause we've had some, a truly like heinous supporting actor years recently. Yeah,
2: Even
1: Robards, like he's fine in that scene. I would never nominate him <laughs> for that scene, but like yeah, he, he's good.
0: <laughs> right. It's, it's important to note he's in like a scene and then they yeah. flash back to it later. Like, He's in one scene and got nominated. Like, fuck. <laughs> um, kills me. Uh, let's do, um, actress, um, Sissy Spacek won for coal miners daughter. <clears throat> Ellen Burstyn won for Resurrection or I'm sorry, not one was nominated for resurrection, which is a bizarre film in which she plays a faith healer. She gets into a accident, a car accident with her boyfriend in California. They like fly off a cliff in the first five minutes. Um, and she's like paralyzed. But also she dies for like 10 minutes, but she comes back. And when she comes back, she has the ability to heal people, including herself. Which there's some goofy shit. I'm not gonna lie. When she's like <laughs> healing her own legs. Um, it just doesn't work. But apparently, like Ellen Burstyn wanted to make the movie because she had brought her own child to a faith healer who healed faster than expected because of it. Um, there is an obviously there's a religious undertone, but not in the way you would expect because her character is constantly rejecting the idea that her powers come from God. Like people there's a Sam Shepard plays her like boyfriend in it. And he's like the son of a preacher man. Um, And he says to her at one point, like, you know, you have to admit it comes from God. And she's like, I'm not committing to that. (laughs) Like I'm not (laughs) committing. I'm not going to put more faith shit in here. So it's, it's oddly at once religious and non-religious. It's an interesting film, but not when I, think you have to see i mean i i didn't hate it which is you know impressive um because i have a long history of not doing faith or anything like it on this podcast um uh gina Rollins is was nominated for gloria which is a, a movie about um a lady assassin played by Rollins who um has to take care of her like neighbor's kid uh after a hit is taken out on the family and then it's just about her and the kid sort of like trying to avoid getting killed which sounds like dumb or simplistic but it's really it's a really good film
1: it's incredible um, we, we will talk about it later yeah, on <laughs> we absolutely will
0: um, and then Goldie Han in private Benjamin uh man um, she is a rich girl who um, gets sort of swindled into joining the military um it's a comedy um yeah it's I, I I didn't love it on my second watch or my recent watching of it I've saw it a bunch of times as a kid. Um, it's, there's a lot of low-grade misogyny in it. I just think we've moved past the film in general, but we don't have to get into that. Um, those are the nominees. My pick is, uh, I love Gina Rollins and, and Gloria. It's like such a good performance, but I, I will go with Sissy Spacek because of the singing and all the shit she's got to do on like convincingly playing a 14-year-old. Um, Tom, how about you?
2: Um, I do love Mary Tyler Moore in Ordinary People but uh I, I agree i still have to go with spacex i think she's just so like well-roundedly great in that movie and she really just brings everything to it
0: yeah oh yeah thank you i didn't mention mary tyler moore for some reason because i had to <laughs> summarize so many fucking films <laughs> so, <laughs> <not everyone.
1: laughs> um i'm gonna go with mary tyler moore um, as much as i love jenna roland's in mm. gloria um I love when actresses, and actors, I guess, but I mean, not really, <laughs> um, like who are known for one sort of thing, um, in this case, sitcom acting, like just totally goes in another direction. It's one of my favorite things an actor can do. And um, she's incredible in it. It's like, it's a tough role to play, as we established. SpaceX also really good. I will say, um, and I mentioned this on my Letterboxd review, like, it's a little disappointing that she won for this and then, like, She's been nominated since, then, but I just think she's made so many like interesting choices since then, and it's like disappointing that like she's never really. I mean, I don't remember the two thousand one Oscar race too well, but like she's never really come as close to getting Oscar attention since then. If if you look at sort of ingenue thing that like we talk about a lot today of like an actress will do will get will win very early in her career and then kind of be ignored from then on, which is disappointing. But so I, I we always like to imagine like the alternate history. So I do wonder like mm-hmm. where her career would have taken us if she didn't win for Coal Miner's Daughter. But um, not a bad win. But I'm going to go with t- Mary Tyler Moore.
0: Yeah. I actually am going to switch and choose Mary Tyler Moore. It's oh uh, wow. it's such a good performance because no, I mean like realistically, if I really am thinking about it, it is the it is my favorite of the performances. Even though I love Spacek in it, like. It's just a brilliant performance and like such a great against type performance and like truly if Spacek had maybe not won maybe there would be I don't know maybe a, a different film would have gotten her one or maybe she would have gotten one in two thousand and one or whatever like I like the alternate history of it so I'm gonna I'm gonna switch
1: in the bedroom Where, where's my in the bedroom <laughs> in the bedroom hive let's go
0: <laughs> um, Supporting actress uh, Mary Steenbergen for Melvin and Howard one. Kathy Moriarty was nominated for raging bull, uh Diana Scarwood for inside moves. Um Matt, did you end up watching that or no?
1: I did. It's also on Tubi, so if you wanted to, it is free, but I do not recommend it. It is about um it's a it's a, it's a weird movie. It is about this man who is um crippled, played by John Savage, who in the opening scene tries to commit suicide. He survives, however, and he ends up like becoming friends with a bunch of um other men who are like disabled in some way, whether it's some through the war and some through, um, other incidents and it becomes friends with them. They're all friends in this like really like, um, blue collar bar. And the bartender is this, um, athlete put by David Morris, who, um, it was very hot in the eighties. I should, I should say. Um, (laughs) and, um, he, um, is he wants to be a basketball player really badly and then he suddenly gets his shot at the big leagues and becomes like a relatively popular basketball player but he forgets all of his friends and they're all deeply upset that he's like forgotten where he came from and everything like that and you know it's about like it's not set in Boston but there are many movies in Boston <laughs> that are very similar of just like like you forgetting where you came from and everything like that and Diana Scar- <laughs> Scarwid plays um The girlfriend or the the love interest to John Savage's character, but she's kind of tempted by the rich and successful David Morse character, which is horribly, horribly sexist. But the movie is the gender politics are are pretty, pretty rough in in the film. Um, Not great. Don't watch it. Watch The Stuntman Instead.
0: Did I mention the other two nominees, Eileen Brennan for Private Benjamin and Eva LeGallien for Resurrection? I feel like I didn't.
2: Oh, you did now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I did I was now.
0: now <laughs> um, <laughs> Gallienne plays uh, the mother of of Ellen Burstyn's character in that movie, and is I swear to God on screen maybe possibly less than Robart. So I, I I don't know how this happened. Um,
1: and yeah, I don't know, uh, Matt. What did you,
0: who's your choice of those of those people?
1: Um, it's really tough. Mary Steenburgen is by far and away the best thing about melvin and howard i think she has one scene um like her big moment where she's on a game show that is like easily the best scene of the film largely because of how good she is in it and i just love mary Steenburgen in general like i think she's one of like the quintessential character actresses who just always knows how like what a supporting performance needs like i think a lot about um her work and this is my only chance to talk about mary Steenburgen on this podcast so i'm gonna go off for a minute oh <laughs> because um, she was never nominated again but um like, I think a lot about her work in, you know, a film like Philadelphia, where she has a very small part as just the lawyer um, putting, like, um, representing the, the legal firms in the film. But, like, she's, like, really incredible in that moment. And then she's also, like, really great with, like, something like Step Brothers, which, like, low-key, she deserves an Oscar nomination for. <laughs> um, but um <laughs> that movie's a masterpiece. If it was directed by Yorgos Latham, it would be in the Criterion Collection. Um, but, <laughs> um, but, um. But, um anyway i i don't know like it's i i the movie itself is not supporting her enough and like i've seen her do so many other better things where i just like as much as i want her to have an oscar i do think i'll give it to kathy moriarty who i think does like a really inc- really incredible work and it's a shame that we also really never the only other thing i've known i've known her from is but i'm a cheerleader which you should all watch but if you haven't seen it this. Mm-hmm. i thought but,
0: you um, you say Casper
1: i i've seen casper i did not remember she was in it actually <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure that's her it is now but like i i don't remember who she was god yeah that movie was mental mental as a kid but yeah. now um, she's the villain I, oh damn oh my god i should go watch casper is that on his <laughs> news? i don't know um though, <laughs> yeah i'm gonna go with her um but i would lo- much love to mary seenbergen yeah
0: tom
2: well, I only hate to pick Kathy just because it's the only one I've seen <laughs> on this list, but uh, she gives a great performance. I I will say though, uh, like Matt, I'm also happy to see that Mary Steenburgen did win an Oscar, so yeah, I'll, I'll be happy with that at least. <laughs> yeah. We're better off.
0: <laughs> we gonna go three for three on this one. I also managed to choose Moriarty, um, just because like it's such a great performance and it's her first performance, mm. which I like. I cannot believe. Like, when I realized it, I was just like, how the fuck does one do this? Um, mm. And I love Mary Steenburgen, too. Like, a, a true icon. But perhaps if she had not won this this Oscar, <clears throat> she would have been forced to be in more stuff. And that's the history mm. I'd like to live in. Um, yeah. So, 17-year-old Kathy Moriarty, it's yours. Um, okay. Uh, we usually talk about um, one more uh, spotlight category. Um, this time we went with Best Song. Um, crazy year. Uh, the winner was Fame, um, sung by Irene Cara from the titular frame, Fame. Um, mm-hmm. it's an iconic song. Uh, it, uh, it's, we've all heard it, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, the other, the, the other nominees are nine to five by Dolly Parton, which like, just speaking of iconic, like my God, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. out here on my own. Uh, by Irene Carl from Fame. It's a ballad. It's not. It's corny. Um, On the Road Again by Willie Nelson from Honeysuckle Rose, which I didn't even know was for a movie, but, like, again, something we have absolutely all heard. Um, And then People Alone by uh, Randy Crawford from The Competition. It's sung by Diane Warren. Um, I have listened to it, but I've already forgotten it. Um,
1: I turned it (laughs) off after a minute because I haven't really... (laughs) I was like, I get it. <laughs> I get it.
0: Um, let's uh, maybe we'll, we'll sort of talk about uh, all of them in general, I suppose. Um, Matt, first impressions slash impressions of all of them. And then, you know, give pick a winner, basically. Uh,
1: I mean, you're absolutely right. Fame um, is an iconic song. Uh, like I've, I've never seen the film. It's one of my big ones that I really need to get around to seeing. even though I've heard it's not great in how it's aged, but, um, i i really did uh that song is just like so well known um i just saw sasha valore over the weekend and she did a lip sync of it which was incredible um (laughs) and um so you know it's great and i i've never heard out here on my own before um and it's definitely cheesy but i guess like you know it works and it like, I don't know. It's it's better than some of the best original song nominations we've had, to be honest. This is always my, like my least favorite category every year. Um, it's better than people alone. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on the road again, like you mentioned, never knew this was from a movie. It was funny when I searched it on Spotify. The first thing that came up was its presence on like the Forrest Gump soundtrack. So it's funny that it's like more well known from a totally different movie than Honeysuckle Rose, but not my cup of tea but you know it's a it does what it does it's not a horrible song but um nine to five socialist anthem is my um mm-hmm. is my one of my go-to karaoke songs it oh, wow. is yeah i think like i should say one of my friends and my go-to karaoke songs it's one of our group numbers and mm. um and it, it it's wonderful like i i um i don't love country but i do have like this appreciation for Dolly Parton for many reasons as like a businesswoman and as um an icon and then also like her music i find much more um like entertaining and almost like poppy in a way that other country music from that era is not and i i love this song i listen to it all the time i i actually will talk about the film in a little bit but um I, I just, you know, excellent that would, would have been my win. As much as I think fame wor- works as like a pop song, 9 to 5 just wonderful. Yeah.
0: Um, Tom, how about you?
2: Um, it was actually interesting listening. I like, when I first looked at this list, I'm like, I've never heard of any, except for 9 to 5. I'd never really like known any of these songs, like just from their names. And then I listened to them, like, wow, I know just about all of these songs. (laughs) And I think it's, like, the iconicism, like, I agree, like, I feel like this list is iconicism, or, like, iconic in a sense, uh, except for people alone. I think the thing that makes it the odd one out is, like, it has such a different tone compared to the other ones. Like, it's so, like, melancholy to where all the other ones have some kind of, like, fun emotion to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Even uh, Out Here on My Own, I actually like that one better than Fame. Like, the (sighs) song... I just I'm a sucker for a good ballad, and uh, even after listening to it, I actually like I had never seen Fame either, but like after listening to it, I was like I kind of want to watch it. Like I made me interested in the in the movie. Um, I actually think it's cornier that uh, the song Fame won because it's like the name (laughs) of the movie, (laughs) but.
1: a theory I have a lot with Best Original Song like I'm always like is this just winning because it's like the one where people are like I know that one like they're like racing through their ballot and they're like oh yeah that's my best picture and they're like oh shit I did the song
2: what a weird I I hate that category so fucking much I really do (laughs) um Mm -hmm. And as much as I love Willie Nelson, I have to agree, 9 to 5 is just so iconic at this point, and like, um, it has so much meaning within the film itself, and I, I just think it's a great song.
0: Yeah. Um... Yeah, what a list! I mean, it's so funny how much we shitting on people alone. It's
1: just, it's fine. It's just boring as shit. Um, Diane <laughs> Warren's a legend. She, but I bet she probably forgot she did this. Song. She doesn't know. She who yeah. asked
0: her to sing, sing this song today. She, she'd be like, "Well, I don't know the words uh, <laughs> <laughs> fully." Uh, yeah, it's such a, like the reason because uh, we were thinking of some other categories as well. But I was like, "My God, what what a an incredible song list!" Because usually it's like there's maybe one song that is memorable ever again in any given year but like i mean arguably three of these possibly four are like you could still listen to them i mean nine to five you constantly hear i love dolly Parton. i she was also at that conference in nashville she was speaking about like she has this program where she gives children's books away free to children for like their first five to ten years of their life or some shit. It's like I was like, Jesus, what a philanthropist. And then she awesome. performed. It was great. So, like, I love Dolly. I'll just listen to Dolly's music at any time of the day. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes I'll just tell the Alexa, just, like, turn it on, baby. Um, <laughs> put some Dolly card I in think on. I you say it exactly <laughs> that
1: way. And the Alexa's like, I know, I understand. <laughs> no, we have a very um,
0: confrontational relationship. So I usually call her a bitch at some point. Or, like, a monster. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, like, I like all of these, I like, you know, f- Fame, fame is, a, is a really iconic song. It's interesting how, like, I think it's less, obviously it's less popular than 9 to 5 and, like, On the Road Again. And there is something about, like, the way that country music is allowed to be timeless a, and or folk music is a way to be timeless in a way that, like, um, some other genres are not. And Fame is, realistically, I mean, this is 1980s, but it is still heavily influenced by disco. And, like, the 80s went so anti disco um, and all the sort of like, you know, racism and misogyny, misogyny that sort of implied that anti disco movement. Like, uh, that, like, uh, the song got buried a little bit, but it is such a good song that, it, like, even that couldn't stop it from, it c- couldn't, you know, make it disappear completely. Um, but yeah, I got to go with nine to five. Dolly is a forever, forever love. Um, we, uh, for our last segment, we always, um, highlight movies or performances or various various things about the uh movies from the year that um we think people should think about it's our four-year consideration um section um tom let's go with you what is your performance
2: movie whatever um it's hard to say it's hard for me to even think of movies back in the year. I'm 24. You got to give me some <laughs> excuse a little bit.
0: <laughs> Matt, Matt and I usually use this section to um, talk about our things that nobody's heard of that we're obsessed with. Um, maybe we'll
1: we'll go with some stuff and then you can think of something if you'd like. Um, yeah. Matt, how about you? Yeah, this is a... I'm looking back at my letterbox for like logged films from 1980, which is what I always do for this segment. But like, what a year. Um my god so many so many movies that i really do just have like an appreciation for i already mentioned i loved gloria for i watched that for this podcast and um it's it's, it's like incredible like i was just like it was one maybe my first john Cassavetes film like or one of Whoa. my first at the very least there i'm i think i might have oh, – no, i've mean i also seen women on the ridge of a nervous breakdown okay um which is wonderful also but very different um no, Gloria. It's so entertaining. It's so managed to like have like like walk this line between being a B movie and also being um, a genuinely compelling popcorn film. Essentially, uh, it has one of the best child performances I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> like the that kid is-, is so fucking good. He's so good, and it's so natural. Like it's in, it's incredible. I um I really he's just, absolutely some kid they found in the
0: Bronx, like walking around, like selling cigarettes for a you know fifty cents or something. And they're like, "Hey, you want to be in a movie?" You know? Yeah, he's so
1: he's so good. He's so cute. Um, great movie. <laughs> Strongly recommend Gloria. Also, as I mentioned before, Nine to Five. Really, really wonderful. Um, and then I will just say really fast. Um. It's a total B movie, but it's a B movie that I really do enjoy. I love the original Friday the 13th. I think that movie uh-huh. is like like a campfire movie. Like a campfire ghost story essentially in the way it's directed. And I remember watching it one Halloween and thinking it would just be like a, a fun, like shitty slasher movie to watch. And it has its elements that were later like, you know, it, like what we became, what became known as like the slasher movie cliches at Scream mocks. But like there's something really funny fun about the direction of that movie that I find compelling and um, it just it feels like a, a ghost story essentially that I, I, I find terrific so you know those movies are three that I, I really love from this year
0: mm. yeah um, no 1980s is like fucking great year for film bizarrely I mean I, I, oddly enough Caddyshack comes out this year um, but uh, Empire Strikes Back uh, Airplane like The Blues Brothers um, I'm really Great yeah i mean all of those films are 1980 which is which is so strange the 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 like the oscars are a weird reflection of what is otherwise a very interesting year xanadu comes out this year for fuck's sake which is not a good film but a fun film to watch i mean it's like Mm the wildest thing i've ever seen um if i were picking a movie i'd probably pick Dress to kill um that's probably why angie dickinson was on and was presenting was because she's in that film and like probably deserved a supporting nomination or possibly a lead that that's actually a hard one to categorize, I would say.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but like, I like that film a lot. I, I do wonder if it's going to age very well, frankly, for, um, reasons having to do with its twist and representation,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: it is a very like beautifully, it has my favorite shot in cinema actually. Um, Which there's shot? a, well, it's the moment um, in the, the last scene when the camera is focusing on a doorknob. This is so stupid. Yeah. Like, it sounds stupid, but it's focusing on a doorknob because there's a killer maybe possibly about to kill um, Nancy Allen, my beloved Nancy Allen. Um, and the, the the doorknob turns, and the when it stops to open, there's this metal strip on the doorknob that suddenly turns into a starburst when the the knob stops turning and at the pivotal moment when the door's about to open. And it's just like such a brilliant, like, ugh, like it's the setup must've taken forever. <laughs> and like, it's such a thrilling, like cap of cinematography on that, like tension of that moment that the first time I saw it, I went, Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like, um, yeah. It's like my favorite shot ever. And there's just some really great shit in it. Nancy Allen is phenomenal in it. Like, truly the two of them should be nominated in these categories. It's, it's too pulpy for the time. I get it. But like, I don't know. I just, I really like that film. I mm-hmm. do have, I will give the caveat that I, I do think it'll
1: be problematic in about
0: five years. It's probably
1: already problematic now. I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah. um, um to Kill is maybe the most conflicted I feel about a movie. At, yeah. Like in general, like yeah. it is some of the best filmmaking I've ever seen, but it like, I saw it only a few years ago for the first time. And that, that ending is rough. So to, to to stomach in tw- in the 2010s, but it's it's stunning filmmaking.
0: Yeah, and like, and Michael Caine is good in it, so it's like it's just rough. It, it's so hard to it's so, <laughs> so conflicting. Um, you could also say any of the women from Nine to Five for fuck's sake, like they all are very yeah. good in that film. Um, but the one I actually I truly wanted to highlight was uh, Barbara Hershey in The Stuntman, which like is a great performance. What the hell was the Academy thinking? Like. She's so good in it. I don't know what you'd cast. I guess you'd put her in lead um, because she's really the main woman in it. But like, there, she's so good in that movie as like an actress. You never know who you never know is being sincere or not. Like because the character never knows if she's being sincere. Is she actually in love with him or is she just trying to get him through the movie so that they can she can film this movie and and be finally become a legitimate actress instead of just like. A dog food salesman. So, um, yeah, Barbara Hershey is fucking great in the stunt man. In case everybody hasn't picked it up, see the goddamn stunt man. It's great. Um, it's free.
1: It's available to watch for
2: free. free. Well, no <laughs> excuse.
0: Um, Tom, do you think of anything? But no, pr- you yes. you don't have to. No pressure. Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: I did. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> it's actually kind of perfect too, because of uh, Doctor Sleep coming out. The Shining actually came out in 1980.
0: It's actually technically um, 1979, I think. Um, is the, it? It's
2: listed as uh, 1980.
0: Yeah, I think the the release dates are weird um, on the thing that reports that. Because we did 1979 recently, and I believe that if you look at the actual like release date, it might be mm. um, 79. Uh, am I right on that? Um?
1: No, it's 80. Re- May oh, okay. 23rd, on. 1980.
0: Oh, shit. I think we might have talked about it in 79. We might have to cut that out. <laughs>
1: Um, <laughs> ever, well, we haven't released anything yet which is wonderful. You we can, we can listen back and edit that out. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah,
2: never mind. Go right. go go off on the China. Google did not lie to me. That's good. Um I really uh it, it's funny cuz actually we watched it before I uh went to see Dr. Sleep and uh immediately what I go into that is just the the build up of um the, the horrors within the overlook. I really think that uh he, Kubrick did such a good job building up like up to Jack's um to uh like his mad- his like growing madness in a sense. The only thing with it that doesn't uh that didn't resonate with me was Jack himself. I actually felt like when I like when he started in the interview, I was like he already looks crazy to me honestly. And I don't know if that's <laughs> just Jack Nicholson or if that's just like Kubrick's direction or I don't know what the the thing was there, but um, it's a movie that like I, I could totally see why Flanagan um, was so inspired to do the the sequel. And uh, even though he's a big King fan himself and uh, it, it's really like a true classic of horror that like it's it's always going to be a classic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about it? I mean, cinematography or, or what what's your what's your like the thing that most connects to you with it?
2: um it, it's it, man. It, it's funny because i feel like now uh i have like a more love for it because i love doctor sleep a lot and uh i think one of the things that i liked a lot about uh the shining was um dick Holurin just because uh he was such a good like guiding force for danny and i love that um he uh god i just can't remember what the actor's name is hang on the kid or nicholson uh no 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 uh dick Hollerin. oh okay um trying to find it too <laughs> <laughs> um hang on uh scatman Co oh scatman, scatman- crothers Crowther. yeah yeah um i i think he's so good as like e- even he has a little bit of darkness to himself just because he knows what the in a sense what the hotel is and um he like really balances this uh like, I feel like the whole movie really is this balance between, like, uh, the madness of the Overlook, and, like, the, the Torrance is trying to, like, keep their own sanity, and, like, it's essentially when, like, Dick goes, or when Jack kills him, like, it, uh, it really, like, sets off everything, and it, like, it just becomes this, like, cat and mouse game that's, like, really terrifying to watch, honestly. Yeah. Uh, even the set design of the Overlook is just so iconic, like, it's such a iconic location that like when they re- when they did it in uh Ready Player 1 i was like that was like easily one of my favorite parts of that too and that's what makes it such like an iconic like location
0: yeah yeah i mean the not to talk about doctor sleep on this podcast but like the production design involved in that and recreating the the <laughs> already iconic production design of this is really like award worthy like they should be nominated yeah absolutely um yeah no the shouting's a great choice um uh, it's not it's not we it's funny Matt and I are also um dif- like lovers of Dr. Sleep uh, which we is apparently the a, <laughs> yeah, like,
1: somehow <laughs> well, we the three a of fan us came podcast, now. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I walked out of that movie like Masterpiece and then like the reviews were all so mixed and I was and it flopped so bad and I was like what a, what a disappointment!" <laughs> yeah,
2: I actually I just to took a, uh I took my grandma to see it cause she's a big uh King, King fan and uh When uh, we watched it, uh, she said she wasn't sure if she read the book beforehand, but then they got to the part where uh, he's looking at, like, the little town within the town. Mm -hmm. And, like, she said she, like, instantly remembered that she had read the book. And, like, I thought that was such, like, a testament to that movie, to recreating, um, like, in a sense, like, that's how you know, like, the book is, like, or the, the movie is faithful to the book. That, like, such a little scene can inspire, like, that, oh, I did read this, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, Tiny Town is unforgettable. Absolutely. Um I think that... What an episode. Uh, Tom, this has been a delight, honestly. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, why don't you plug your socials if you want to? Um, you know, Twitter, letterbox, whatever you want to have direct people to.
2: Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at underscore more reviews. Um, that's a capital M and two O's. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. uh <laughs> and uh you'll see me writing again through the top break you'll see yeah. my articles.
0: yeah we released these so or so long after we've recorded them so that god knows what horrible thing i'll make that you'll ask to write about by then
1: <laughs> this will be january 2020 this episode so it might be oh. some rough shit but right it's gonna be just really bad shit. um matt how about you you can find me on Twitter at MattMFU1, and you can find me on Letterboxd at MattT.
0: Yep. Um, I'm at Marissa Carpico everywhere. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone.